Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 17, Beginning Teachers Learning, a book review. Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We've got an unusual one for you today. Not only that I'm the first voice on the episode, which doesn't usually happen, but also that we're doing a book review and it's been absolutely ages since we did a book review. I know, because we're still lamenting the loss of the wonderful Dr Judith Neen, who was our book club founder... And Benign dictator who... <laughs> of book club. Judith, come back. It doesn't mean that we've all stopped reading, of no, course, but no. it just means that we've uh, run out of people who are willing to come on the podcast with us to discuss the books that we've read. Yes, so. they were good ready-made episodes, those. But today mm. we are bringing to the table probably the tiniest book that we've we've reviewed. I mean, uh, Daisy Christodoulou's first one was pretty small, wasn't it? The, the Seven Myths. But this one, I think, is even smaller. It clocks in at under 60 pages. It does. Um, but it comes with a really great series of books. This, uh, this sort of series is called Critical Guides for Teacher Educators. It's edited by Ian Mentor. And I have yet to read one that isn't really useful to anybody in teacher education you know I I think they're accessible and tiny for a reason yeah and uh, very useful not just for those of us who actually do it full-time uh, in a university kind of context either because otherwise this would be an extremely niche episode but for anybody involved in teacher education by which we mean the likes of us anybody in schools who get to work with student teachers and probably also student teachers themselves if they're kind of interested in looking behind the curtain I'd suggest. Yeah I agree this is actually aimed at school-based teacher educators however as Tom says there's there's plenty in there for for anybody who is who is a involved or, or interested in initial teacher education. Yeah, so for those of you rushing out to place an order on your, your favourite book, Emporium, the book that we're looking at today is called Beginning Teachers Learning, Making Experience Count. And it is by Catherine Byrne, Hazel Haggart and Trevor Mutton, who are three very big names in the world of teacher education, all based at Oxford University, unless I'm very much mistaken. Yeah, correct. Uh, I think Catherine Byrne, she's a PGC history um, and obviously history t- former history teacher um but she's pgc history um specialist at oxford hazel i'm not sure hazel's subject but i i know do you know hazel's subject i don't Tom? know hazel's subject no need to ask hazel her. tell us your subject yeah um <laughs> and uh, yes but basically she her particular interest is making practicing teachers expertise accessible to beginners and she's written quite extensively about that and then trevor mutton um works very very closely with us on our research advisory board but certainly at the point of writing this particular book Um, He was the course director for the University of Oxford's PGC course. Yeah, we've been lucky enough to work with a couple of these people in the past and they've been very supportive, but they were involved in a long-term longitudinal study of student teachers of the type that we can only dream of. Yes, it was the DET project. Uh, DET being an acronym for, (laughs) she says, she flicks through the book. I just had it. (laughs) Developing expertise of beginning teachers, the DET project. Um, So they tracked 24 teachers for three years, hence longitudinal study, recruiting them from two well-established partnership schemes, partnership for initial teachers 
nature education and very, very similar to the Cardiff partnership for ITE here at Cardiff Met. It's jointly planned, um, jointly delivered between university and participating schools. The students have got to do 120 days in school, divided into two placements, sounding familiar, Sounds Tom. Sounds very familiar, yeah. But the interesting thing is that they collected data... Um, which included observation and filming of individual lessons taught regular intervals uh, by these 24 teachers four times during the PGC year and once a term in the following two years. Goodness knows how they managed to keep a hold of them all during yes. that time. Um, but what they did after the lessons was um, they interviewed the teachers whilst looking at the video footage and the two sort of main guiding questions, central research questions to this research project was what are the beginning teachers learning and how are they learning? So they were sort of asking them to reflect as they were watching um, lessons, particular insights that they gained from it and to also reflect at the end of each year on, you know, how they were progressing. So what we're going to do then is we're going to just do a quick whistle-stop tour of the contents of this book. As I said, it's a very small book, so it is entirely readable uh, by anybody who wants to do so. We're going to whiz our way through. Thanks as ever to the omnipresent builders outside who fired at possibly their biggest power tool yet. My life <laughs> is not complete unless that one of them does that as soon as the red light goes on. So thanks to the builders outside for that. <laughs> Let's give a little overview. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if you're short on time... If I think chapter four is going to be your friend. Chapter four is how can we help beginning teachers to become more effective learners, which is obviously, you know, it's the, it's <laughs> yeah. the so what, now what bit um, of this book. But prior to that, they have a really interesting chapter that we'll talk about in a moment about some sort of pen portraits that they did of individuals who were part of the debt project and how they differed as student teachers, as learners. Chapter two deals with the challenges of learning to teach. We'll dip into that a little bit. Um, what we know in chapter three about beginning teachers as learners, so kind of what feeds into their identity as a learner, how they learn, any challenges that they particularly face. And then, as I said, chapter four, so so what do we do? How can we help them become more effective learners? Yeah, definitely. All, all the good answers in chapter four. But we were very grabbed by the very opening. Uh, it does open with a series of pen portraits of student teachers. There's lots of kind of uh, recognisable features here for those of us that do this for living and it starts kind of very eye-catchingly with the ideal beginner and it's this person called Hanif I assume not his real name uh, but Hanif is the ideal um, beginner he, he arrives with high aspirations he's aware of his own weaknesses he's endlessly trying to improve uh, he's just that kind of student teacher I think that you really want uh, to have all the time when you're on placement uh, duties as a mentor they've got quotes from him let's read one of the quotes for a big uh, for a start the big similarity is I'll always be learning even going beyond an NQT there's always some, going to be something else I can learn so many million more things that I can learn they praise his positive approach uh, he talks about the pupils being as good as uh, of an observer as, as the mentor watching and understanding what's going on 
he's brilliant he's rigorous he's fantastic and interestingly i think you you all sort of assume when you when you're partway through it that this is a sort of composite figure really that, that's mm. the kind of ideal that's never existed but apparently Hanif was a real person hopefully still is a real person <laughs> <laughs> yes they say at the end of his pen portrait it's hardly surprising that the adjective we chose to sum him up um, and his teaching career at the end of his second year of their project was flourishing oh, and isn't it always lovely to have a flourishing student but doesn't always happen um, we don't all flourish all the time in education lucky old Hanif that it was uh, it was really his happy place being a student teacher. Probably more interesting for those of us who work a lot with student teachers, spend a lot of our time supporting them and helping them, particularly in the in the rough times, is the ones that they call case studies of more complex trajectories. And this is where they describe, again, some real people who they've applied pseudonyms to. Um, and they talk about their struggles, but more importantly, they talk about kind of what the, what the things we learned from those struggles. So we're going to take a bit of time to just kind of summarise these and dig into these. And the first one was uh, Rhiannon, who had a traumatising experience early on. Yeah, they sum up her case study uh, and her profile as limiting the vision to reduce the challenge. So... Rhiannon came into the teaching profession with sort of high aspirations and quite a clear vision of what teaching and learning should be, should look like. And she found that the the sort of scales fell away from her eyes when she tried to do something quite pedagogically complex. I think it was, was it sort of experiential learning or it project? Was, yeah, it was quite a discovery kind of thing. I think yeah. she set quite an open-ended task. She was a maths uh, student teacher. It was a bit too open-ended in a way for a, for a new student teacher in that she hadn't anticipated some of the things that the pupils were going to try and do. So on one level, it was a lovely task. But because the student, the, the the pupils kind of went off and did their thing and, and came back with stuff that was difficult. It was too complicated for them to wrap their heads around. This student teacher didn't know what to do about it. It all kind of went down in flames. My goodness me, we've all been there, haven't we? Yeah. But in the case of this particular student teacher, she was so kind of shocked by things getting, I mean, I'm assuming they weren't kind of chucking things at her or being badly behaved, but it was just the fact that everything got a bit unpredictable and a bit out of control. It kind of made her go, back into a shell really and not not just for kind of a week or two but for absolutely ages yeah it did in, it, it, I mean to put it really simply it knocked her confidence hugely which made her very sort of risk averse then going forward and it wasn't until their NQT year really that she kind of got over it and, and started coming out of her shell a little bit and I think there'd be an awful lot of student teachers that this happens to we, we all have our lessons where we try something a bit ambitious it all goes a little bit <laughs> out of control and, and we maybe we kind of retreat a little bit but it's really interesting for me that that they they kind of identified that this was still reverberating around for quite some time you know all the way through the pgc and into the nqt year the most important thing here is the questions that then get raised that we've got somebody who is ambitious she's optimistic she had experience of working with young people before she did the pgc but then she kind of shut down because she couldn't deal with stuff getting out of out of her her kind of close control and so they set these questions well how do we set up early teaching tasks that are simple enough to manage but don't kind of reduce things into simplistic and boring kind of stuff so how, how do we scaffold this for student teachers without 
limiting the the kind of interest in the innovation and the challenge how do we make sure their early experiences are positive how do we help them generate uh, develop an accurate knowledge of people's current misunderstandings and misconceptions how do we get them to kind of work out those little landmines that are going to be along the way in the pupils learning and and deal with them perhaps kind of uh, ahead of time without again kind of limiting everything and making everything run on rails because that's that's kind of not what we want Mm. and it's interesting that when things started to change for Rhiannon it was when she was focusing and paying more attention to what the pupils were telling her and what feedback they were giving her and powerful quote here it's the feedback from the pupils that's surprising me and affecting the way that I teach or that I think about teaching if I think I, I think I know a class and I know the individuals the pitch of the lesson is always direct at them suited for their level but if the pupils are still going to surprise me about their level and their understanding then I'm still going to have to alter the pitch and the level each time and so you know there's another sort of implication there about how we can sort of direct student teachers and at what point we should direct student teachers to be listening to learners and to really homing in on 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 what their practice is is doing to and what impact it's having on their pupils learning yeah I'm sure loads of people listening to this who've worked with student teachers will recognise past experiences there. Let's move on to the next one, which is another kind of interesting one. We've got this person who's given the name Anita, and this is somebody, we've come across a few people like this in some of our own work, somebody who's come from a previous career. We do get career changes in teaching. You know, they've previously had a professional career. In the case of Anita, she was a healthcare professional and she was starting again as a teacher and she was according to this pen portrait she was completely aware of this she was happy to acknowledge this she was saying that she accepted that she'd be kind of going back to square one and she wouldn't anymore be this sort of uber confident person Uh, but actually in reality if stuff went wrong in the classroom it, it was like a huge hit for her and I suppose maybe because she'd come from from the healthcare world I mean she said you know you never make the same mistake twice I guess you know you never want to make the same mistake twice when you're in healthcare because the, the stakes are perhaps a, a touch higher but but she found that really hard to deal with and although she she was prepared to kind of pay lip service to the fact that she would have to go back to square one in reality it was a lot harder for her. Yeah that's it I think it's, it, it's, it's very difficult as well when you've come from a back where you have developed your practice such that you are doing it so in an integrated way automatically you don't really have to sort of think about the complexities of what you're doing anymore because it's become so embedded in who you are your identity and what you do that actually going back to the beginning and having that feedback it sort of shatters your whole identity as a professional and as a a practitioner and this comes through in 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 one of her quotes here she says the other feedback was very constructive but I felt destroyed by it because I thought I am not this person the positive things were just so weak that's why I thought nice but dim you know (laughs) so the perception of herself was really really took took a hit and therefore that was affecting the way that she was receiving processing and acting upon her feedback I think this is a really interesting one and I think possibly taking a moment of sort of self-reflection and self-criticism here I mean we get a lot of career changes we get mature students and I, I sometimes think that perhaps we haven't spent enough time thinking about how we support those particular uh, student teachers because you know we get lots and lots of people who are fresh out of university 
in their early 20s, for example. But when it comes to having had a career already in something else and moving into teaching where it is so complex and it's so multi-layered that you are going to go all the way back down to ground level that that is really hard and it there are there are loads of plus points with having had been a professional previously but it, it can mean that it, it's quite difficult to kind of move beyond those preconceptions and weirdly if one of the career changes we get is people who've been learning support assistants so they have been in the classroom and you would think that those people would particularly be very very well equipped and sometimes they are but it can be a real impediment sometimes to moving on because you have got things. You, you're not just starting from scratch and having to build stuff up. You are sometimes having to unbuild things first. Yeah. And and, and this chimes with some of the research into the sort of characteristics of student teachers as learners later on in the book, which is this sort of dual identity of being a professional whilst also being a learner. And something that was characteristic that we mentioned about Hanif was that he was comfortable with and very happy with being a learner as well as being a professional and a teacher. And in fact, he makes the point that our our dean actually often makes, which is that if it, at the point at which he stops being a learner, that's the point at which he should stop being a teacher. So a question that really encapsulates this um, following Anita's pen portrait is how can we encourage trainees to embrace the idea of being a learner rather than viewing such an identity as a transitional one that they're seeking to shed as soon as possible? Like I'm not a learner anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm now a fully fledged teacher I, and, and you know I've, I've, I've gone through that threshold. And the other one particularly pertinent to um, Anita's case um, and her reception to feedback was how can we provide feedback that focuses trainees' attention not on themselves but on their pupils' learning? So it's sort of redirecting that focus. Yeah, and I think they've picked Anita as this kind of career changer who who sees her, her identity as a professional kind of bound up in all of that feedback and therefore sees it as knocking her down because it is so very clear and very obvious. But actually, I think it is transferable beyond just the sort of mature student career changer type people, because there's a wider point here, which I often find, uh, particularly with my music lot, I don't know whether it's a music specific thing, but even for those who are not career changers, even for those who've come from a degree straight into a PGC, the difference is that when you do your degree to, to, to a great extent, you stand or fall by your own abilities and what you've put into it. You know, you put in a ton of revision or a ton of practice or loads of work, then you're going to get a decent mark, kind of, you know, broadly speaking. And if you get used to this idea that, you know, it's it's down to your own abilities and your own effort, whether it stands or falls, once you get into the classroom and you've got those really unpredictable pupils yeah. floating around and it's so multi-layered and so complex, sometimes you put in a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of work and it still goes down in flames. And that sort of thing can can end up as a really toxic spiral of people just working harder and harder or you know a bit like the first person I guess in, in this trying to put more and more control in place and you can end up going down an awful kind of vicious spiral there because you associate things not going 100% right with something that you personally have done wrong or some personal shortcoming. Yeah which is why um, you know without wanting to get too much into the how yet um, of how we help combat this but it's just, which is why we use reflective 
adaptive models that try to move students away from their initial emotional reaction to what happened to a much more sort of critical, balanced judgment um, to try and find a way forward. So, you know, these pen portraits, they, they're they a really great starting point, I think, for understanding the learner that you've got in front of you, which is the student teacher, and, and what strategies that you can deploy to help them um, to find a way forward, depending on what their area of difficulty is. And then the final case study that they give us is Rob. <laughs> yeah. they, they'd uh, summarise him as early competence but restricted growth. I mean, basically, Rob, uh, on coming onto the programme, he, he had various bits of experience doing teaching outside of the mainstream classroom. And I mean, we do get this, don't we, quite a lot of people who have done some sort of other kind of teaching, which is useful up to a point, isn't it? But but sometimes it can it can lead you into bad ways. Yeah, it can. And I think what, what happened with Rob, but from the sounds of it, is that he sort of plateaued. And this wasn't entirely Rob's fault. I mean, there's something yeah. that's quite interesting and illustrative about this comment he makes reflecting on his his mentor's attitude to him at a certain point in his PGCE year. He says, I had a mentor session yesterday in which he said something about he doesn't see the need to observe many of my lessons. He basically said to me, you're competent enough. We want you to work here next year, which basically misses the point in that I'm supposed to be learning. I'm supposed to be getting more feedback, but I'm not. It's a problem in a way. If I'm unsure about something, I can obviously ask, but I'm not getting the voluntary response. Maybe there is a problem in my teaching that I don't know about and I'm not seeing. And of course, the problem there was that, yes, all right, the mentor had said, yeah, Rob, you're really good. We're going <laughs> to we're going to lay off you a bit. Mm. And Rob, again, you know, paying lip service a bit was sort of complaining about that. But I quite like the fact the authors make the point that, you know, Rob didn't actually <laughs> go off and seek any challenge as a result of that. You know, Rob was kind of OK with that, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think some part of the problem with Rob as well was that he he didn't have a great deal of aspiration for his pupils learning. Um, and this was, uh, you know, indicated in his reflections. His reflections were rooted in the practical requirements of the tasks and responsibilities that he faced and when asked about his own learning his answers became increasingly succinct suggesting a degree of impatience with the idea of continued professional learning so he didn't see himself as needing to learn he had low aspirations for his his pupils learning he you know he says things like if it works there's no point in changing it um he uh, consciously adopted a good enough philosophy of lesson preparation then you know we had a sort of a, a recipe there for a, a plateau at at best i suppose and at worst maybe poor outcomes in pupils learning yeah, and it's a difficult balance, isn't it, really? Because there is a sort of survival aspect here. I mean, for people who are not currently in the classroom, people who are in the classroom end up teaching hundreds of lessons a year. And you've got to watch out that you don't become this sort of nothing's ever perfect in a really toxic way kind of person, you know, a bit like the thing hinted at by Anita. But on the other hand, sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to say that'll do, that's good enough, because otherwise you'd never sleep, eat or, or have any friends. Mm. But equally, there is a point where it will kind of tip over into a lack of aspiration and particularly as you say where it where it concerns the pupils actual learning mm, absolutely and this is why when we come you know to sort of later um approaches recommended in the book this sort of deliberative 
um, research-informed, inquiry-based approach is seen to be, you know, most fruitful for for students who are sort of in this in this rut, really, of a sort of hit and hope approach that'll do it good enough you know um because by adopting some of those more deliberative approaches by by inquiring by g- gathering some form of you know light touch empirical evidence of whether it's working or not then you know it's it's difficult to argue with that um if if the results aren't really there yeah, and I love the point they make at the end. I mean, one of the great features of this book is that each chapter ends with a sort of little summary. It calls it in a nutshell. And they say just four case studies. We've had, you know, the amazing Hanif and then these three who were, you know, great in their own way, but had these kind of problems uh, at the heart of what they were doing. Just those four case studies serve to demonstrate the dangers inherent in thinking about a typical trainee they say we would say student teacher but you know I would really invite anybody that works with student teachers to kind of just look at the complexity there and all we're talking about there is kind of people's backgrounds people's kind of experiences very early on in their in their teacher education it's really really complicated and they move on then in the rest of the book uh, to start talking about the the real complexity and pulling apart the complexity of the process of teaching mm, they do they do so what are the challenges of learning and teach to teach well they start off importantly we've nodded to this already about the complexity of teaching and they do that in the first instance by trying to identify from uh, you know quite a vast research base that they've drawn upon for this book the different types of knowledge that teachers need um, and the sort of three basic dimensions of knowledge, skills and dispositions that Bransford et al. found were knowledge of learners and learning knowledge of the subject matter and curriculum goals and sitting underneath that one knowledge of subject matter and curriculum goals something that I'm particularly interested in is um, pedagogical content knowledge we'll talk about that in a minute Um, and knowledge of teaching so you know those three vast areas already that a teacher is trying to balance navigate and obviously they intersect in the sort of complex sort of situation of a lesson already we begin to understand that this is this is something that is not going to be easy for student teachers to in a year come to master and also for a mentor working very closely with them getting them to sort of know how to prioritize um, those different aspects of knowledge you know what, what what am I chasing what am I focusing on when I'm planning is it you know more important that I put my emphasis on subject matter curriculum goals when I'm planning or you know where do my knowledge of learners and and learning come in and how how am I going to do that early on in my practice when I barely know these kids um so what they do is they sort of set about breaking down those three broad areas so knowledge of learning and learners they talk about you know greater emphasis on the need to draw on a deeper knowledge base of diverse learners and more highly developed diagnostic abilities to guide their own decisions so they also need to have an awareness and knowledge of people's prior knowledge and what they've learned during their early years. Now, arguably, that's that's really, really difficult for um, PGCE student teachers or pre-service teachers to access. By the time 
they get to know that information, you know, even at a basic level, they're about to leave. And I think that's what's frustrating. We find this a lot, don't we, Tom, with students who are just about to go from placement one to placement two on the PGC programme is that they feel that just as they're getting to know these kids and, and how they learn best and finding that they're getting somewhere in their practice, they have to go and start all over again. Yeah, it's a big learning experience for everybody, that midway point in the PGC, because I think when you've done one placement in one school, you you kind of think, well, how different could it be anywhere else? Mm. You know, I know how to teach drama now. I know how to teach music now, whatever it is. And, and the shock that they tend to experience when they go to a new school and they try really tried and tested stuff that worked absolutely perfectly every time in placement one and just find that it either does something completely different or kind of does nothing at all. It's a real kind of shock. And I think that point about everything's in context is really important. You know, drama teachers, music teachers, primary teachers, secondary teachers, you know, it, it's very, very hard to do things other than in context. And they say, you know, professional knowledge has to be enacted is one of the one of the points that they make. You know, you can't just kind of whack it all down in an instruction book and, and then you're going to be fine because you enact it in one place. It's going to do one thing. You enact it somewhere else. It's going to do something else. Simple rules of thumb are not enough. I mean, that's a that's an absolutely classic one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Already you can start to understand the sort of strategies that are going to be needed when working with student teachers to help them to focus on the right things and and what they're going to need to do to get a better grasp of um, their their learners um, and, and how they're learning. So the next big broad area is knowledge of subject matter and curriculum goals. And this one is particularly interesting for secondary practitioners, I think, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, primary practitioners are expected to learn across a range of subjects. But um, there, there's an expectation that student teachers will have deep understanding of subject content. However, you can't take that for granted, even if they have a degree, because you could still be required to teach a lesson known I'm thinking about drama now, genre, practitioner, text, style that you you haven't covered on your degree. Pedagogical content knowledge. Um, Now, this is an interesting one. It's one that I'm particularly interested in for my own ed So pedagogical content knowledge is different to curriculum knowledge. So what this is, is it's an awareness of the underlying concepts and organisational structures within a particular subject domain. And the process by which a teacher decides the most logical or effective sequences or steps by which the knowledge might be built. Um, so it's it's the, what do I know about this concept and how is the best way to go about teaching it? And, and that is that process and helping student teachers to go from, you know, knowing something really, really thoroughly for, as a, from a learner perspective, from a degree perspective to how am I going to break this down in the most logical way for year seven? How am I going to break this down in the most logical way for year nine on a Friday afternoon with all of this going on? That process is, is very distinctive to the sort of knowledge that a, that a, that a student teacher and a teacher needs and hones. Goes back to that uh, traumatic experience with that discovery learning, doesn't it? You know, yeah. that she didn't expect the weird sort of things that the, the pupils were going to do and it, it kind of threw her off. So it's not just about knowing the thing that you need to teach because I guess most secondary people are subject experts. They know stuff about their subject, but 
kind of the problem is they know lots of stuff about their subject. It's kind of a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. And actually the ability, as you say, to work out how you learn that thing, uh, what order you need to learn that thing in, and, and crucially, what problems you're going to have along the way, what mistakes you're going to make, what yes. kind of disasters you're going to have, and manage to sort of get people around those without without just killing all the learning that's a really really trick tricky balance to to kind of strike isn't it because you you can just end up giving everybody loads of information and going there we go i've taught them that stuff so there kind of need to be mistakes and there need to be little sort of bends in the road but but you also don't want to get stuck down a massive hole and that's really hard to plan for exactly and and i suppose it, it it's a good example of why when a, a well-meaning teacher educator says, right, student teacher, great, you've come in. I want you to, you know, you've got free reign now. Uh, you've got seven lessons I want to teach with year seven on X topic without some very scaffolded, supported guidance, particularly in their first placement or early on in their teacher education. You know, they might flounder. They might be unable to go through that process of translation. Another thing is that also it intersects with not knowledge of learners and learning. If they don't know the kids and what they already know and don't know, they could go in and pitch it at the completely wrong level. So, you know, again, we're starting to, just by looking at these three areas, moving on in a minute to knowledge of teaching, you know, how complex the knowledge base that student teachers need to draw upon and use in practice is for them. So then we get into knowledge of teaching. Beginning teachers need to develop a repertoire of strategies that might be used in teaching any subject. They also need a storehouse of representations and analogies for teaching specific topics. Um, this times with the work of Deans for Impact um, that we've looked at previously on the podcast about practicing your practice, about deliberate practice, and about building up strong sort of mental models to fall back on when you encounter something in the middle of a lesson where students are having a problem. If you've got absolutely no experience of students finding something challenging in a lesson or pupils' behaviour being sort of less than desirable in a lesson, any kind of incident that you're unfamiliar with cropping up in a lesson, if you've not had that prior experience or, you know, practised your practice beforehand, but it could blindside you and you might not know what to do next. So I think it's really interesting that this storehouse of representations and analogies for teaching specific topics is an interesting one. And that, that applies specifically to subject domains. You know, how do I teach genre? <laughs> how do I teach the, this particular style of theatre? How do I teach this particular concept? Um, but also more generally, how do I deal with this moment when it occurs in a lesson? Yeah, and I distinctly remember actually sitting in front of a camera with a slide talking to the students about this a little while ago. I wish I had it in front of me now, but I can't. I can remember some of the features of it about teaching. I mean, we've we've just talked about how complicated it is, and I, I remember distinctly saying into this camera about the fact that all this stuff happens in real time, doesn't it? And and it also happens publicly it happens in front of the pupils so it's not like you're kind of putting together some really beautiful thing that either happens at a nice comfortable speed when you want it to happen it actually happens when it happens and it, it zooms along in quite a scary way and quite an unpredictable way and it happens in front of an audience in which you are trying to look like this sort of uber confident 
professional. And so that just adds a kind of whole other level of difficulty to it, doesn't it? That real time nature. It really does. And talking about that real time nature, something that struck me about this particular chapter as well, particularly about novice teachers, is that when they observe skillful practice early on, it may appear familiar and deceptively simple because they're used to seeing it from a sort of learner perspective. They're they're used to sort of being in it and it working. So it it might seem like something really easy to replicate in the first instance. You know, obviously we've just we've just shown that every student teacher is going to be different. But this really struck me that, you know, we cannot expect student teachers to know how to observe in a critical way and to be able to pick out some of the real complexities that are happening in real time in front of them, they might reduce it to something that is deceptively simple. Yeah, there's a point somewhere in the book, isn't there, that that we've all been in a classroom, so we all think we know what teaching is. I mean, that's probably at the root of all the nasty comments you get in the media about teachers having a nice, easy time in loads of holidays. I mean, to my own shame, I think, I think I remember being in school and, and just sort of thinking that my teacher just sort of wandered into the room and stuff came out of their mouth and then they just sort of wandered out again. I had absolutely no idea what was going on. And that's, you know, kind of all well and good. But when you're then training to be a teacher yourself, we hear this so much, don't we, from early teachers. And I remember it myself. You watch your first lesson and you just see this thing apparently going absolutely brilliantly and the pupils doing as they're told and it all fitting neatly into an hour. And you just think, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You have absolutely no idea what's just happened. You either think it must be easy or you just have absolutely no idea how to replicate it yeah yeah yes absolutely (laughs) and this is a thing you know this chimes as well with the other problem which is that teacher educators can sometimes find it difficult to articulate their own expertise and point it out when it's going on in practice because so much of it has become embedded, implicit, embodied, and those quick decisions, that knowledge in action that they talk about in the book can be very, very difficult to articulate and for a student teacher to pinpoint. Yeah, we've we've settled on the analogy of learning to drive in our, our sessions that mm. we've been doing. You know, we had a really, I think I mentioned this before, we had a lovely discussion with some student teachers a little while back where we were asking them about when they learned to drive, those of them that, that had passed their test. And it really kind of brought it home to them that they, they sort of remembered that bit where changing gear was in their head was about 56 separate things all of which they had to kind of remember to do you know put the clutch in do this do that do the other and now of course they don't even know what gear they're in half the time because it's automatic and then that realization that that's why it looks easy and also that that's why their mentor sometimes finds it difficult to explain because when we asked student teachers what did you learn when learning to drive they were saying things like overtake or parallel park and that kind of thing and we were saying hang on a minute you know you don't just parallel park there's probably hundreds of individual things you had to learn there and then they got an insight into the fact that their mentor might actually have to do some mental steps in order to kind of go all the way back to whatever the teaching equivalent of parallel parking was in order to actually satisfactorily explain it because as you said they you do automatically after after a few times yeah yeah it's it's incredibly complex and you know just finally bringing it back to the student teacher and to just give a 
a clear representation of how many different competing priorities they've got going on um, when they come into this game. Apparently, there are, you know, from from research, there are six kinds of goals that that trainees point to in their lessons as these sort of competing concerns. Pupil achievement, pupil state uh, included, any goals that were directed towards changing or maintaining a particular affective or emotional state such as their enthusiasm so they go in right are they are they achieving are they interested in my lesson are they confident of what they're doing pupil action are this comprised of all the trainees goals relating to what the pupils were actually doing so are they doing what i'm ex- i'm expecting them to do pupil knowledge and this related to the trainees concerns to promote pupil learning but it was specifically focused on finding out about the pupils existing knowledge so what do they already know so the assessment is going on self learning they thought they were also going i'm supposed to be demonstrating to my mentor at this point that i'm mastering this thing that they told me that i needed to improve so they got all of these competing concerns is the content desirable is are they are they covering the right content are they fostering student learning are the pupils willing to participate are they maintaining momentum in the classroom is is the classroom environment conducive to learning and am i demonstrating that i'm doing what i should be as a as a teacher i mean when you break it all down like that you just go my goodness we expect a lot in a year on a PGC programme. Starting to make me wonder, actually, whether I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. And, and it sort of makes you go, well, it's no wonder that when the when it is that complex and when it is that interwoven, you know, no wonder uh, a teacher might find it difficult, an experienced teacher might find it difficult to sort of extrapolate different points and, you know, look at them in depth and in detail and explain why they did why you know what they did in the lesson okay so having thoroughly put everyone off teaching by saying how complicated it is it's good to see that towards the end of the book we start getting some suggestions some questions some ideas for ways that we can actually support the student teachers in this really complex endeavour. And of course, for those of us, I, I know, as, as you said, this book is is main, mainly based uh, on school-based initial teacher educators, because we have this complex three-way relationship, don't we? They've got the student, you've got their mentor in school, and you've got us as well floating around in the university context. And it's the number of ways that we can actually help and support the student teachers to become effective learners and I guess thereby effective teachers. Yeah, and and obviously, you know, an important place to start, you know, thinking back to those case studies at the start of the episode, is to elicit the trainee's preconceptions, to understand who they are, what they think about teaching and learning, what they think it is, what they understand about themselves. So they say un- eliciting those preconceptions is an essential first step in enabling your trainee to acknowledge their influence and so begin to subject them to critical scrutiny. Yeah, we do that at interview, don't we? I mean, we've got quite good at asking some deceptively simple questions, which will sometimes elicit preconceptions so kind of wildly out of the ballpark that we don't actually let people onto the programme. But assuming people have actually got onto the program i think there is a place to find out where they're coming from 
there because i mean at, at the most extreme end and i know they mentioned this somewhere in the book earlier on don't they there are some people that think that the pupils just sort of sit there and soak up the wonderfulness of the lesson like these sort of adoring kind of things some people think that, that they're just going to be having a laugh all the time in the classroom and sort of playing and messing about as we've heard we've got people who are career changers who perhaps have a, a really complex identity built around being a professional and i think we are becoming more and more convinced about the importance of professional dialogue aren't we as, as we do this job and I think there's a professional dialogue to be had there which would be really interesting yeah I, I I totally agree and and then we get into some really practical ideas around how teacher educators in both contexts work with their student teachers um, with sort of small tweaks that can make a big difference. Like the one that jumps out to me is a learning timetable, not simply a teaching schedule. So when a mentor is putting together their student teacher's schedule, I think at a minimum, they will be thinking, right, who is it going to be best for my student teacher to work with? And how do I give them sort of a broad range of groups to work with? All great. But even better if you're thinking about building opportunities where students can look at specific aspects and details of what happened in a lesson. So have they got time built into their day to reflect and to then maybe even put into practice quite soon after some of the observations and reflections in order to help them improve. So, for example, if they've got a year seven lesson in the morning and a year seven lesson in the afternoon, we've we've spoken to a number of student teachers who've said that they found it quite powerful if they can get the feedback and implement and act on the feedback quite quickly after. So th that might be an, another sort of simple but effective way of thinking thinking about your student teacher's timetable not just as a teaching schedule but as a learning timetable for them and this is somewhere where we can get a bit of tension sometimes isn't there because there is a tendency sometimes to say they just need to teach they just need to teach they need to teach loads of lessons that's what they need they're not teaching enough lessons <laughs> we do get this occasionally from schools and occasionally we do have to push back on it a little bit and it's i think it, it goes back to that learning to drive thing doesn't it as a as a very experienced teacher you just you teach and teach and teach and you do get better because you have the skills of reflecting and thinking about what you're going to do about that thing that didn't go quite well but these people are very very new to it and it would be a bit like your driving instructor i guess to go yep. back to that analogy saying you just need to drive just drive and drive and drive you just need to do more driving whereas <laughs> <laughs> you know when you say that and you think back to your own driving lessons and all the million times you reversed around a corner and you know the loads of times that you did little tiny focused bits of practice before you then went on a long drive you kind of realize that yeah it's not actually the be all and end all is to just teach 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 and teach you've got to reflect and you've got to practice and you've got to observe and get feedback and then practice in the moment and that sort of thing it's not just as simple as they've got to teach more complete lessons no absolutely and and um, they've got they've got some interesting things to say about observation as well and I think this is food for thought for us on our programs here because we encourage our student teachers to reflect and observe early on in the placement but actually in the book they say that engaging in extensive observation early on tends to inculcate trainees against it so subsequent benefits. They say that observation becomes a much more productive process of learning later in the year when beginners are more aware of the complexity of teaching, can appreciate the diverse needs of individual learners and the competing objectives that teachers may be seeking to prioritise. This goes back to this idea that they just, they're, they're not sure what they're looking for early on because everything looks 
Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that's food for thought for us about, you know, how it comes back to that learning timetable. You know, you're still factoring in observation, you know, later on in their practice. And and how does that, does that, does that necessarily mean the teacher being completely detached and sitting on the periphery? Or is it deliberate, focused observation of the learners, you know, freeing them up so that when you're teaching, they can really focus on what the learners are doing in response to some of the pedagogical approaches and tasks that you've set up? I think there's a danger there for us, isn't there, into falling into the same traps as the uh, the discovery learning maths lady, <laughs> Rhiannon, from earlier on, because you, you don't want to give them tick boxy observation tasks, because that's kind of, you know, making the same mistake. I mean, this is kind of the fun of it, isn't it? It's quite multi-layered. I mean, you talked about those types of knowledge that teachers need. Teacher educators need those types of knowledge up a level and the type of knowledge down a level. It's it's a similar thing with this. If we give them awful tick-boxy observations, they're going to not get very much out of it. But as you say, if we just give them, hey, hey, students, go and watch a lesson and tell us what you think without structuring that discussion afterwards, perhaps they're not going to get much out of that as well. So it's always about a balance. It is always about a balance. And I think it's it's also about teacher educators having a whole raft of what we are starting to call IT pedagogies, you know, it's not it's not a new thing, it's not a new concept, but I, I don't think we've done an, enough thinking around, you know, what is distinctive about what, what we're doing and what we can do in the university, what we can do, um, what our our fellow teacher educators in school can do um, and then taking a much more focused and deliberate approach to how we prescribe certain things and work with our student teachers you know they talk about promoting a deliberative approach towards learning from experience in the book um, and I think that's something that uh, as uh, as ITE providers that we can all work together on um, on on trying to develop so promoting a deliberative orientation towards learning from experience includes you know making suggestions about how a trainee might develop particular aspects of their practice and selecting the right technique or recommending the right technique that's going to help them with that you know is it observation is it deliberate experimentation with something is it that they need to go off and do some reading before you know they can do any of those other steps is it they need to go back to team teaching so that you know they can be in the moment with you so that you can then coach them in that moment. You know, try it this way. If you, you know, I, you know, if you sort of reduce some of the mental load with certain parts of the lesson, so that they can focus on, you know, what it is that they're really trying to crack or overcome as a barrier within their own practice. Is it that you need to use videos and audio recordings of their teaching and and help them to engage in some focused reflection on that? Um, is it that you need to do some some co-planning with them and go back to basics and get them to to really think? about the lesson before they teach it you know any number of these approaches could work but it's about as an ITE tutor thinking about using the right one at the right moment for the for that particular student yeah and it's I mean this may end up as a rhetorical question I'm not sure I've got an answer to it really but isn't it weird that as classroom teachers because I mean we're all ex-classroom teachers as well we can do that stuff really well with the pupils. We can go, oh, they need me to support them or oh, I need to find a new resource to do this or I need to find a new way of doing that or I need to break that down. And yet, weirdly, when we're working with student teachers, we just kind of default back to that. Oh, well, you know, just copy what I do and it'll rub off or just teach more lessons and it would be fine. And yet, you know, if we did that with the pupils, if we said, well, I don't know. Yeah, that that cake didn't work. We did it in in 
home economics or whatever they call it these days just <laughs> bake more cakes and it'll all be fine we would be slated and yet actually transferring that kind of upper level to the the student teacher level we all seem to find that quite hard and we seem to lose our ability to do that mm, yeah is it because the pupils in school are a much harsher audience i don't know when it goes wrong they express their displeasure <laughs> much more directly or is it just that it's hard to do i don't know answers on a postcard yeah i mean i'm reflecting on what you say now we were talking about this before we started rolling that a teacher educator in school has got all of those complexities and competing priorities as a teacher whilst at the same time all of the priorities and competing complexities that a student teacher needs all coupled with the accountability pressures, you know, they've still got to make sure that their pupils get to the end of that year making progress whilst helping their student teachers progress. So, you know, there's some real sort of layers, levels, meta levels of what's going on when you're a teacher educator. And I I would argue that in some ways they've got a harder job than us when they're when they're working in a school context because I think the complexities are are greater. Yeah, there's an awful lot going on. And so I suppose that's why we would recommend anyone who's got a little bit of time on their hands to have a good look at this book, because I think it, it gives us some answers, but it also gives us some important questions to ask ourselves about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think it would be time well spent. I think now, particularly over on this side of the border, over in Wales, I think we are making a conscious effort to try and get away from this kind of apprenticeship model of, you know, just copy an experienced teacher or this kind of them and us, you know, you learn the real stuff in placement and those hippies in university irrelevant kind of stuff i think we've, we've set up the sort of culture and now i would suggest that this book perhaps is a really useful resource to actually start having the conversations that need to be had yeah i agree okay so there we go book review haven't done one of those for ages no <laughs> hopefully that wasn't just the ramblings of two ramblings uh of two crazy people two crazy people talking about um, cakes yeah <laughs> And driving. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you call that subject anymore uh, these days? Design food? I hope you can honest. Whatever it was, I was bad at it. Uh, <laughs> I loved it. I don't know whether I was good at it, but I, I did enjoy it. I was very bad. <laughs> right. We should probably show that we've done our own homework oh, yes, yes. this time. Half each, isn't it? We've, we've colluded on our homework. Do we have... <laughs> Yeah. So which one do you want to do first? Uh, let's do something interesting for a change of pace, shall we? And and then because something to try is back to the book. So let's just zoom off on a detour. Yeah, I'll try and make mine quick. As uh, anybody who listens to the podcast knows, we are both fans of a podcast. <laughs> um, and my most recent listen is Expenses, a podcast from The Telegraph. And it says about this, a hard drive, a room full of reporters and the biggest parliamentary scandal in a generation, how MPs expenses came to light. So this is a it's, a, it's quite a short podcast. It's only six episodes in total, but each one takes a different perspective on the uh, 2009 expenses scandal that broke in the UK and that the Telegraph had exclusive um, reporting rights to. I think they 
paid a pretty penny they, for it. Yeah, they bought the the material, didn't they? And that was quite a quite a debate at the time as to whether they should have bought it or not. I seem to remember. Yeah, and I, I, I that that's interesting in and of itself, you know, and how they went about um, sort of mining all of this data, which is basically just a load of people's sort of expenses, claims, you know, loads of stuff that needed to be redacted, personal information, you know, buried in there was the fact that one MP spent a load of money, which became the sort of the, the thing that stands out in everybody's memory about this period of time, spent a load of money on a duck house. Oh, the duck house, <laughs> yes. There was the moat cleaning as well, wasn't there? Wasn't there yeah. a bath plug? Somebody <laughs> expensed a bath plug, I seem to recall. It, it was day after day, wasn't it? It was hit after hit after hit for days and days. It was not a good time to be an MP. Not a good time to be an MP. And it takes a different perspective per episode. So from the reporter's perspectives, the cartoonist, which is particularly fun and, and, and funny, a campaign um, a politician, a lawyer, an editor. It, it just makes for really interesting listening. And as with all of these things, it kind of sort of gives you a cross-section of, of what was going on in that particular time, that context, and, and raises important questions about, you know, politics today and whether things change for the better and uh, and where we are now in response to all of this. But yeah, very interesting listen. Probably not really doing it justice from my explanation, but um, I'm finding it interesting. So that's expenses from The Telegraph. Lovely. I shall be tuning into that. Okay. And for something to try, we thought we'd better make it something to try from the book because we've suggested to all of our fine colleagues, both here and in school, that they actually take this and run with it. And we were quite taken with this table which is on page 39 of the book weren't we yeah so this is the different dimensions of learning from experience this table in the first column identifies five dimensions according to which trainee teachers orientations might differ so aspiration is one of them so the extent of the trainees aspirations for their own and pupils learning intentionality the extent to which the trainees learning is planned frame of reference the value that the trainee ascribes to looking beyond their experience in order to make sense of it, how they respond to feedback, so their disposition towards receiving it, the value that they place on it, and their attitude to context, so their attitude to the positions in which they find themselves and the approaches that they take to the school context. So you've got all of those five in the first column, and then you've got in the adjacent columns their orientation to that particular dimension. So for example, with aspiration, the extent to which the trainee uh, aspires for their own learning and their pupils' learning, on one side of the coin, in terms of their orientation, they could be they could have satisfaction with their current level of achievement. On the other side, they could be aspirational, both as learners and as teachers. And we saw this with was it Rob? Rob, yeah, definitely Rob. Yeah. So you know he was sort of plateauing because his orientation was that he was quite satisfied with his current level of achievement with regard to his learning and his pupils' learning, and he plateaued as a result of it. Whereas Hanif was aspirational both as a learner, he acknowledged that he needed to be continuously learning, and that he needed to learn from his pupils in order to keep moving forward. Um, intentionality, so the extent to which the trainees' learning is planned, they can either be reactive in their orientation orientation towards this dimension or they can be deliberative you know and we talked a lot about being deliberative and deliberate practice um, earlier on in the episode so what we would recommend is that 
anyone out there who's interested and is working with student teachers looks at these different dimensions, thinks about the orientations and uses it as a stimulus to reflect on either a student teacher that you've got with you now, um, student teachers that you've had in the past, and maybe use it to help you write or discuss a pen portrait of that particular student. And most importantly, like the book does, what questions arise from your understanding of this particular student that might be a bit of a springboard to thinking about how you might support student teachers like that in the future? And I think if you know, if you had that sort of very good relationship between a mentor and a student teacher, this would potentially be food for a lovely dialogue early on in a placement or even midway through a placement to try and kind of get to know one another. And it goes back to that point I made about what, you know, we do stuff with our pupils, but we we just forget to do them with our student teachers when we're teaching them. We all bang on endlessly about knowing our learners, don't we? And yet, do we know our learners when they're student teachers or do we just assume they're going to be, you know, like all the other student teachers? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good point. I think the final thing to say as well, I'm just reflecting now, is that, you know, these obviously aren't necessarily fixed orientations and they're, they're, they're simple binaries. But, you know, at any point in the year, a student teacher could be more reactive active than deliberative could have a tendency to be disabled by critical feedback rather than effectively able to use the feedback so you know they're not necessarily going to be sort of fixed characteristics or orientations but you know knowing then how you can um, move forward with them when they're in that particular orientation uh, with regard to that dimension will hopefully help you help them Lovely. So let's give a final shout out for the book. It is Beginning Teachers Learning, Making Experience Count from the series Critical Guides for Teacher Educators. The authors are Catherine Byrne, Hazel Hager and Trevor Mutton and is published by Critical Publishing. Thank you very much for sticking with us. We hope you found that interesting. We'll be back with you, of course, in two weeks time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. A reminder of that book, Beginning Teachers Learning, Making Experience Count by Bern Hagrid Mutton, series editor Ian Mentor, from the series Critical Guides for Teacher Educators, published by Critical Publishing. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.